evening, everyone. And if you haven't already spent most of your life here, welcome to Goucher College. Uh, oh, yes. On this piece of paper, it clearly states, I am Madison Bell, co-director of the Kratz Center for Creative Writing, whose founder, Eleanor kratz Denoon made this and other such events possible. Eleanor Denoon was a Quaker by choice who thought deeply not only about spiritual matters, but about every aspect of the world and the people in it. And in that respect, I believe that she shared a great many interests which, in the case of Gail Godwin, are artistic concerns. Gail Godwin was born in Alabama. I will not say exactly when, but by her own account, she has outlived Henry James. She considered attending Goucher College. We will have to try harder next time. But eventually took degrees from the University of North Carolina and the University of Iowa Writers Workshop. In her first youth, she worked as a journalist at the Miami Herald and elsewhere. She began to publish fiction in her early 30s and has published 20 books so far. To name them all would take too long, but I'll mention the National Book Award finalists, The Odd Woman, A Mother and Two Daughters, Violet Clay, and also a couple of my personal favorites, The Good Husband and Flora, the latter steady on my short list when I was a judge for the Penn Faulkner Fiction Award in 2013. In a recent New York Times essay, Gail Godwin suggests that she is slowing down, but evidence does not support this claim. Her two works currently in progress are a novel, Grief's Cottage, and a nonfiction work, Stuck, a Writer's Companion in Dark Days. It has been a special treat for me to teach a little of Godwin's work to Goucher fiction writing students. I don't want to get too technical for a general audience tonight, but reading and rereading Godwin does remind me how few of the available craft devices are used by American writers today for the past few decades. It is as if they are only able to see about a quarter of the spectrum. Studying Godwin as a craftsman is a very enriching experience, something like going from black and white to all the colors of a rainbow. Gail Godwin and I are both Southerners. Southerners make biscuits. You may or may not be aware that Baltimore is just a hair south of a Mason-Dixon line. If not, why, you have already learned something at Goucher College tonight. I taught my daughter to make biscuits in our Baltimore kitchen, and she always had the honor of making the biscuit critter, which is what you do with that last scrap of dough, which is too small to make a whole biscuit. I was a fool to think this practice was particular to my family. Gail Godwin writes in 2012, the old writer wants to use up his fatal tissue like biscuit dough, pushing the leftovers into another and another artful shape down to the last strange little animal. I am here to testify 
that Gail Godwin has in just the last few years brought some remarkable creatures into being. We will get a taste of them now. Please welcome Gail Godwin. Well, he said it all. I was particularly happy to be invited here by Elizabeth Spires and Madison Bell for two reasons. Uh, as he said, I almost went to Goucher as a day student many years ago. It didn't come to pass. Something else happened. But it would make an interesting story. And the second reason is I just finished a novel, my 15th novel, literally just uh, two weeks ago. So far, only my agent has read it and approved it. And um, I wanted to try out the first chapter on you. But first, I wanted to just mention a few things about publishing and publishing life because of this little book I wrote last year called Publishing a Writer's Memoir. I'll read the, the fun thing first. Um, um, you know, when I, when I began to write, there, there was no such thing really as um, publicity and branding and image so much with a writer. Um, when my first novel, The Perfectionist, was published in 1970, there was no photo of me on the jacket. Um, author photos were for stars like Hemingway with his bare chest and white beard and Camus with his cigarette and Mary McCarthy with her dead straight center part. And during the course of the novel's production, nobody asked me for any kind of publicity photo. However, things changed, and by the time uh, 12 years had passed, and I had published A Mother and Two Daughters. I went on my first book tour, and from then on went on many more. And I'll just read a short passage about some of my memories of the book tour. My book tour memories whirl around in my head like familiar old clothes in a see-through dryer. In the whirl, I spot the awful things I did and the awful things that were done to me, and I shudder over them first. I, I remember strutting about on the carpet at Regis College, trying my best to shock the Jesuits. And I remember getting up from a dinner table in Cincinnati declaring in a huff I was canceling all my engagements for the next day and stalking off to my hotel room. The local publicist knocked on my door through the night and there were flowers and notes outside in the morning. And of course, I went through with all the interviews and the luncheon. What had, what had set me off? The other author the locals were hosting, had written a diet book, and part of his act was to stand beside a life-size cardboard replica of himself as a fat man and give his spiel. 
At the previous night's dinner, the publicist had triumphantly informed him that he was booked on all the morning TV shows. I'm sorry, she said to me, we couldn't get any TV for you. Novels are harder to book. Though I'm sure I suffered as much as the publicist during that long ago night, I lay on the floor and never got undressed. It seems funnier now and quite prescient of things to come. That author in 1982, I don't remember his name or his book, uh, but he was already successfully building his brand. All by himself, he hugged his cumbersome double folded to the size of a carry-on garment bag, on and off all those flights. And I remember the escorts, those individuals who are paid to meet you at the airport, get you to all your interviews, and be your companions while you're in their towns. There are angel companions, like the one in Madison, Wisconsin, who took one look at me when I staggered off the plane and said, I am going to iron your clothes while you take a nap. And there was that prince of escorts, David Winger, who founded one of the first escort companies for writers in D.C. And he would later become my model, even in physical appearance, for the character of Francis Lake in The Good Husband. Between the Diane Ram show and a bookstore signing, David and I were sitting in an outdoor mall, and I asked him, how did you come to choose this line of work? He thought for a minute and said, it suits me to serve people's needs. And this is what the young seminarian Francis Lake replies to Magda Danvers in The Good Husband when he is driving her to the airport the morning after her strange lecture. And Magda, being Magda, retorts, what about your own needs? Who's going to serve them while you're off serving everybody else's? And then there were the devil escorts, like the woman who drove me at top speed along a Los Angeles freeway while regaling me with the details of two of her recent authors who had suffered heart attacks. <laughs> One at the radio station towards which we were heading. He vomited first, she said. We thought maybe it was just something he ate. And then the other one in this very car. Her, her tour had to be canceled, of course. And then there are the confiders who drain your empathy, like the young man who couldn't keep a girlfriend. You've got to play hard to get, I heard myself advising him as we pulled up outside a pharmacy to get me some cold medicine. And then there was the sad fellow who had charge of me for five days up and down the northern California coast. He wore a black suit and was enduring horrible, horrible domestic trials. He wept inside the car until the windows fogged. And I kept reminding myself, soon this will be over for you, Gail, but not for him. And then there are the 
compare and contrast escorts, which are the most dispiriting of all. Sue Grafton always makes the bestseller list the first week of her tour. What are you in now, your third week? Or be glad you're not like X. She's so attractive, she always draws a crowd because people want to say they've seen her, but then nobody buys her books. Whereas you at least have sold 15 books. <laughs> You're early. When I went to pick up Shirley MacLaine, her handler was standing outside her house giving me the finger. Shirley MacLaine goes ballistic when people are even one minute early. And last, I'm loving your novel, though I've just started it. Last week, I had that writer who cut his own hand off, and our schedule was beyond frantic. And now I want to tell you a little bit about how um, I think my writing and my attitude towards writing has changed in the last few years. And it began... Uh, when I started Flora. Um, I had read an interview with a film director who said that the mind of an adolescent was like a haunted house and a buzzer went off in my brain this way. Everyone quickens at the idea of a haunting or a ghost story, but if you are to make a success of this kind of story, you have to find the level of haunting that you're comfortable with. There are many ways of being haunted. If you force your haunting story past the line your own belief can tolerate, the story dissolves in a puddle of fakery. I found myself halted in Flora by my toleration line. Every time I tried to force the ghost across the threshold of my novel. I was sure that it would be the grandmother, Noni's ghost, and that given her propensity for talk and instructions, she would manifest herself as an auditory ghost rather than a visible one. But eventually, I let the voice simply be Helen's internalization of her grandmother's advice, stories, and concealments. The progress of a novel is never a simple point-to-point -point endeavor that can be traced in reverse, like running your finger backwards over a road map. It's more like a pattern of clusters with extensions exploding from the individual components that make up these clusters. If I hadn't eventually scrapped the film director's temptation Flora could have ended up as a pure ghost story. It might have been a good one. I would have tried to make it subtle and ambitious like, well, the turn of the screw, which became my secret model. But here's the thing. I wouldn't have chosen the turn of the screw as my secret model if I hadn't been tempted toward a ghost story by the film director's remark. Both the ghost idea and the turn of the screw became my boosters, like those rockets that blast off with a space 
orbiter and then drop away at the right time. Only my rocket stayed attached for quite a while. James Novella was a dependable booster whenever my confidence sputtered. I would say, who's going to want to read about a little girl and her summer guardian isolated on a mountain in the past? Then I would say, well, but how many times have I reread the tale about that long-ago young governess isolated with her charges? I even considered naming my little girl Flora like the one in James's tale, but quickly revolted at the aggressive mimicry. Yet the lovely, old-fashioned name seemed just right for the simple-hearted young woman who would stay with Helen while the father was away. During the writing of Flora, I noticed that my writing style was undergoing a change. I was shaping a shorter, sharper sentence and working towards an essentialness in theme I found almost severe at times. I was moving away from the all-inclusive requirements of the realistic, social, psychological novel and towards the simplicity and essentialness of a tale. During the three years I was working on Flora, I also became aware that my methods of work were changing along with my attitude towards my career. I was in my mid-70s now, having already gone past the lifespan of two of my favorite writers. I had outlived Henry James, who died at 72, and before long I would be edging into Thomas Mann's territory when he was writing his last novel, Confessions of Felix Cruel. During the composing of Flora, I found myself abandoning my computer screen, an ergonomic kneeling stool, and settling into an armchair across the room with a pen and notebook. This was a dramatic change. From the age of nine, I had typed my stories Hunt and Peck style, the way my mother did. Her typewriter kept its place on the kitchen table as long as I lived in her house and I was welcome to use it whenever she wasn't clacking away. I had my own typewriter in college and didn't need one at the newspaper. But now I was opting for the armchair and its hassock and an array of notebooks, pens, and pencils. I discovered I liked the view from the armchair my empty computer screen on its desk in front of me, and a lineup of all my American hardcovers on the shelf above. It opened a new perspective on time. One day, like the millions of writers before me, I would leave behind an empty desk. However, I would also leave behind a row of books. Now for the new novel. The first people to hear it, and I hope I hope it works. Uh, as I said, this is 
this is a ghost story, and it's a full-fledged ghost story. Um, I had been working towards it with Flora, and I'd been working towards it long ago with a story I wrote called Dream Children. Um, and, a, and my full-fledged ghost story is based <clears throat> on these premises. One, that some people can pick up more frequencies and wavelengths than others. And two, some people simply have a predilection for the uncanny. And this story is set in 2004, just before everyone grew a cell phone out of his hand. They were there, but not yet. So here's this first chapter. Once there was a boy who lost his mother. He was 11 years, 5 months, 4 days, and would never know how many hours and minutes. The state troopers came to the apartment around midnight, but the accident had happened earlier. A part of him believed that if he had known the exact moment her car slid on a patch of black ice, and somersaulted down the embankment. He could have sent her strength to hold on. Please, Mom, you're all I've got. And she would have heard him and held on. She had gone out to buy them a pizza. They were going to watch one of their favorite old movies on TV, the one where Alec Guinness and his band of thieves pretend to be musicians. They rent a room in a nice old lady's house, shut the door, put a string quartet on the gramophone, and she is never the wiser. Before the movie is over, she's helping them move their stolen goods, and she is still none the wiser. The star of this movie had special meaning to the mother and son because they had read an article about how Alec Guinness never knew who his father was because his mother had refused to tell him, but he had still grown up to be famous anyway. Aunt Charlotte was my mother's aunt, which made her my great aunt. I had only heard tales about her before I went to live with her. Even the tales weren't much. She had run away from home early, married several times, and then gone to live by herself on an island. At some point, she had taken up painting and had become a successful local artist. She wasn't a letter writer, but whenever Mom wrote to her, she sent back a postcard with one of her paintings. I was always mentioned by name. Mom stuck the postcards up on the refrigerator, paintings of storm clouds over waves, orangey light on wet surf, a gloomy ruin of an old beach cottage. The paintings had names, storm approaching, sunset calm, abandoned cottage. My late grandmother had referred to her as Crazy Charlotte or my Bohemian baby sister. Aunt Charlotte painted under the name of Charlotte Lee. It could have been the name of one of her husband's mom said, or maybe she chose it for herself. I did not get to Aunt Charlotte's Island until late spring. The wheels of the law had to turn first. A person from so social services stayed with me the rest of that night, 
and helped me pack my things. She asked about my next of kin, and I showed my mom's insurance policy. We've got to get you a guardian ad litem quickly, she said. That's someone who will be your voice in legal matters. When I asked what legal matters, she said, determining who will be your permanent guardian and how your estate will be managed. When I asked what estate, she said, the estate from your mother's insurance policy. Our belongings from the apartment were put into storage, and I was sent to live with a foster family and finish sixth grade from their address. The boy I shared a room with in the foster home had had the left side of his face completely crushed by his stepfather while his mother was undergoing rehab. From his right profile, he looked like a normal boy, but from front and left profile, it was clear that his cheek had melted. There was much plastic surgery in the future. I liked my guardian, Adledum, William. He was the one who got me into the hospital morgue to see my mom and helped me decide on burial arrangements. William was so tall he had to stoop to get through ordinary doorways, and he wore a full dark beard. He could have been a stand-in for Abe Lincoln, though he had a shiny ball dome. He had grown up in these parts and had a mountain twang so thick it sounded like it was making fun of itself. The foster parents had Bible study for us every night. It was called Parable Party, and they made it a competitive game. Even the little kids could quote chapter and verse from the gospel parables and I soon became a whiz at it. I was a fast learner and a good memorizer, and I enjoyed a mental challenge. Mom and I read the King James Bible aloud to each other because she wanted me to be grounded in its stories and language. Sometimes we used it as our augur, opening it random to see what we should do about something in our lives. But it didn't take precedence over everything the way it did in the foster home. Then one day, I was told to pack my things. It was all set up legally, and I was going on my first plane ride to live with my great aunt at her beach cottage in South Carolina. You are one lucky boy, Marcus, the foster mother said. William stayed with me at the gate until I had a name tag hung around my neck and I was escorted on board by a flight attendant. William's last words to me were, live long and prosper. And we gave each other the Spock hand blessing from Star Trek. Aunt Charlotte was waiting just on the other side of the security gate, a very thin lady in white slacks loose white shirt, and scuffed brown sandals. She had stern, beaky features and a frosty, mannish haircut. At that time, she was 57, but she appeared elderly to me, though she was my late grandmother's younger sister by six years. She looked at least a generation older than that stylish, coiffed lady who had visited Mom and me several times. 
The flight attendant who had escorted me checked her papers. Then he handed me over and wished us good luck. I had steeled myself for a theatrical hug, like the foster mothers or some display of antish emotion. But she simply gave me a firm handshake and said, Well, Marcus, here we are. While we waited for my suitcases down in baggage claim, she told me my boxes had arrived and were stored in her garage to unpack when I was ready. It took me a minute to realize she meant mom's and my stuff from our apartment. We went out into the suffocating heat and she had me heave the suitcases into the trunk of her old Mercedes sedan. The leather seats were boiling, but she said they would cool down in a minute. She wasn't much of a talker. Are you hungry? Do you like shrimp? We'll go to a place where they serve all the shrimp you can eat. The shrimp were very small and fried in batter, and I ate three helpings. There were also these sweet fried bread balls called hush puppies. Aunt Charlotte picked at her salad and had two glasses of red wine. The waitress kept urging me to go back and refill my plate. Her name was Donna, which was stitched on her uniform, and she smiled a lot. Her teasing, affectionate tone with me reminded me a little of Mom, and I went back for the third helping, mostly to make her smile some more. Aunt Charlotte had not smiled once, and looking back, I realized she must have been as apprehensive as I was. I doubt if I smiled that day either. When I threw up in my aunt's car, she pulled over. No problem, the seats are leather and most of it's on the rubber mat, she said. She set me up with an eight ounce bottle of spritzer water, a roll of paper towels, and a gallon of windshield wiper fluid from her trunk. It rained a lot during the season, she said, so she always carried reserves of wiper fluid. I'd use the spritzer water, she said, for the front of your shirt and the wiper fluid for the rest. Then she withdrew to the grassy embankment and appeared to be studying the traffic. Heat waves rose from the asphalt and made wavery squiggles around her thin white form. The good thing about the heat was that my shirt was dry before I even finished cleaning the car. When we were on the road again, I apologized for the smell. All I smell is wiper fluid, she said. After we crossed the causeway to her island, she stopped by a store with gas pumps in front, and we bought some things for supper. The man at the counter told her the day shrimp catch had just come in, but she said, my, neighbor has, my nephew has already had his fill of shrimp for the day. Whenever I tried to crawl back into the skin of that boy, Aunt Charlotte suddenly found invading her precious solitude, a boy who was neither a charming child or a promising young man. I am surprised that after living alone by choice for so long, she was able to tolerate my company as well as she did. She spoke like someone who wasn't used to social talk. She said what needed to be conveyed and stopped. Are you hungry? Spray yourself with sunblock even if it's overcast. 
If it's anything urgent, Mar Marcus, you can always knock on my studio door. Mom had guessed right about the Lee surname. Aunt Charlotte had made it up. She said it was the obvious choice down here where people still refer to the American Civil War as the Great Unpleasantness or the War of Northern Aggression. Aunt Charlotte and Mom had grown up in West Virginia, known to Southerners as the Turncoat State because it separated from Virginia and joined the Union in the Civil War. Neither of them had any accent other than a mid-Atlantic one, if there was such a thing. Aunt Charlotte's voice was dispassionate compared to my mother's emotional range. Mom could please, tease, or appease, whatever the situation called for. Whereas Aunt Charlotte, even when she was in a good mood or making fun of somebody, stuck to her gruff, matter-of-fact monotone. After we had established a routine for ourselves that consisted mainly of each of us mapping thoughtful roots around the other person's privacy, she had a serious talk with me about money and my trust. She invited me into her studio for this. She removed some books and papers from a chair and asked me to sit down. It was the smell of turpentine and oil pigment which still connects me with the pleasant idea of someone making something alone. Her studio faced the north end of the beach and had a milky, regulated light, less yellow and warm than the other rooms in the cottage. She also slept in the studio behind a curtain. It took me longer than it should have to realize she had given up her bedroom to me. I have always worked, she began. Ever since I left home at 16, I have held a job. When I married, I supported the first of my no-good husbands, and I worked twice as hard as the next two slackers. I will never be rich, but this fluke of a talent has made me safe for the time being. People want paintings of the beach. My style is on the primitive side, but that's an asset. Don't ask me why. For a large part of my life now, I've lived alone and supported myself by my painting, and it has suited me. She was perched on a high, school, a high stool in front of a gigantic paint-spattered easel on wheels. Its large canvas was covered with a cloth. She was looking at me, but she was actually looking through me as she carefully picked her words. When they contacted me back in February about your mother, they said I was the only living relative. I asked about your father's people, but I was the only name listed on the policy. Did you know, Marcus, that she had taken out an insurance policy on her life? It was in case anything happened to her, I said. Mom and I had imagined some fatal illness that would take her away and leave me all alone. We didn't foresee that something as ordinary as driving two miles on a winter night to pick up a pizza could accomplish the same ending. Ah, she says, where do you think you'd like to go to school? There's the public school across, across the causeway and a few of those so-called academies. Or you could go to boarding school. There's enough money. You know that, don't you? It was supposed to be enough to get me through college, I said. Then it will be. We'll see to it. 
Meanwhile, it will pay our expenses until you're old enough to live on your own. And as your guardian, I get a nice monthly stipend from the trust. You understand about that, don't you? I want everything to be above board between us. I said I understood, but her insistence on above-boardness, which would turn out to be one of her sterling qualities, had a bitter effect on me that day. So it was the money, I thought. She only took me because of the money. Without that nice stipend, she would never have forfeited the solitary life that had suited her so well. She went on to explain the trust and how it was set up with a law firm in Charleston that specialized in that sort of thing. There would be monthly statements about how the money was invested and how well it was doing. It seemed that if you had a certain amount of money, you should expect it to make more money out of itself. And you are welcome to examine these statements anytime you want, Marcus. Maybe I'll just leave them to you for now, I said. It was all I could do to sort out the information arising out of this talk we were having. The revelation about her nice stipend had deflated any grand illusions of my being wanted simply because I was me. On the other hand, I saw advantages to her scanty information about my past. When she had said, I asked about your father's people, but I was the only name on the policy. I realized she had assumed that my father was the person whose last name I bore, Harshaw, even though Mom and Mr. Harshaw had parted ways two years before I was born. With my background being so vague to Aunt Charlotte, there would be less embarrassing information for me to disclose. Look at it this way, Marcus, Mom had said, when we had to leave her good job at Forster's Furniture Factory in the Flatlands of North Carolina and moved to the mountains. In a new place, Marcus, we can tell people what we want them to know, and that will be our past. To cover the readjustments going on inside me, I asked Aunt Charlotte what she was painting. After apologizing for it being one of her bread-and-butter commissions, she removed the cloth from the large canvas on the, evil, on the easel. So far, she had only outlined a substantial-sized beach house, and some palmetto trees in dark blue. She explained she was working from a color photo provided by the owners. I don't paint from life anymore. It's too messy. Sand blows into the pigment, and no nosy people crowd around and make dumb remarks. If you're interested in seeing the actual house, it's down at the south end at the beach where they're building all the new McMansions. So far, it's the only one with three stories and a fake cupola. For my honest paintings, I go to the north end of the island. Those are the old houses when people built behind the dunes. There's one old house, a cottage. I must have painted it at least 50 times. But people keep asking for it. Since I took my business online, I, can, I can't keep up with the orders for that one house. I paint it from photos now, but they are photos I took myself. What's a fake cupola, I asked. A cupola is a tower where you can look out at the view, but this one is just stuck up there for show with no way to get to it. Why do people want paintings of that other house? 
It's a very old cottage, what's left of it. It's a ruin, and it has a haunting quality. I'm still trying to do justice to its quality. Walk up there and see for yourself. It's the very last structure at the north end. It's half gone, but it emanates a powerful mood. The locals call it Grief Cottage. The town commissioners have been dying to tear it down, but the historical society's on their back because it was built in 1804. I need to go up there and get some more photos in case they lose the battle. Why do they call it Grief Cottage? A family was lost there in Hurricane Hazel, a boy and his parents. The parents were out desperately searching for the boy, when all the while he may have been in the cottage. Anyway, none of them were ever found. Some of the locals think the boy may have been hiding in the house somewhere, smoking. It was a cigarette that started the fire that burned down the south end of the cottage. They found a cigarette on the remains of the south porch, but they never found a body. Others think that when he realized his parents had gone out searching for him, he rushed out searching for them and got swept out to sea. But his body never washed up either. Maybe it still could, I said. I don't think so, she said. It was 50 years ago. I can show you the latest grief cottage I painted, I mean on my computer screen. As soon as I get this commission out of the way, I'll give you a tour of my online gallery. But now I must earn my bread and butter while the North Light is still strong. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Shall I go out? Yeah. Uh, there will be a book signing up in Rosenberg Gallery, and you can get a word with Gail Godwin there. Thank you all for coming. See you in a minute. Okay.